The following is brought to you by the generous support of Clio. What you're about to hear really happened. It's raw and painful. The following account is told by real-life exoneree Uriah Courtney. He was wrongfully accused of rape and kidnapping a minor. Despite being at work and having a solid alibi from two people, his boss and a fellow employee, Uriah was convicted and received a life sentence. But for one key person not giving up on him, he would have spent the rest of his life behind bars. And given what Uriah was falsely convicted of, prison was going to be a very, very dangerous place for him. At the California Innocence Project, we represent innocent people who have been falsely convicted of our nation's most horrible crimes. They are at the end of the line and face staggering prison sentences. They've exhausted all their options. They desperately want their freedom, and we are often the last shot in this world that they have. As a matter of principle, we only represent people who we know for a fact to be innocent and who we can prove did not commit the crime. Sometimes the fight goes our way, and sometimes it doesn't. We learned a lot from Uriah's case. Coincidences can and do pile up against innocent people. It is imperative to protect and preserve evidence. And above all, never give up on your innocence. I'm Michael Samanchik, Managing Attorney for the California Innocence Project, and you're listening to Uriah's Story. Spent most of my life in prison Chasing a dream called justice Chasing a dream, chasing a dream Won't somebody please hear my plea Won't somebody please set me free My name is Uriah Courtney. I'm currently 42 years old. I was born and raised in Salmon, Idaho, a very small town in Idaho. It's actually an old logging town. I've got six brothers and sisters. I've got four sisters and two brothers, um, not including step-siblings as well. So pretty good-sized family. We're all spread out all over the United States. My dad's been married four times. <laughs> so <laughs> kids with all, all the wives and, yeah, you know, didn't have, I wouldn't say, the, the best childhood because my parents divorced when I was pretty young, when I was five. So I spent a lot of time moving, bouncing back and forth between my parents. You know, as terrible as it was, it was also a great opportunity for a kid to be able to, to get out there and see a lot of different things that, you know, a lot of kids at that age didn't have the opportunity to, even though it was afforded to me through uh, something that was pretty terrible. I think I moved down to San Diego from Oregon in 88 or 89, and I started third grade here in San Diego um, in a town called Mira Mesa. Um, and I lived in Mira Mesa from third to seventh grade. And it was a good time. Um, it was my brother Tars, my sister Misty, and then my mom. We lived in an apartment there in Mira Mesa, and it was difficult for a country boy coming to the city. So I did have some difficulty adjusting to, to being in a, a large city such as San Diego. But it was also exciting. Um, I got into skateboarding and, and bike riding and, you know, stuff like that, all the typical stuff that, you know, boys do. Uriah tried to live a normal childhood in spite of some early family challenges. But as we will see, he would begin to have struggles that would have a long-term impact on his life. 
2005 was a really, really rough time in life. I was a drug addict. I was addicted to methamphetamine, and I pretty much did whatever was available. But meth was certainly my drug of choice, and you know it brought uh, a lot of struggles and and difficulties in life. I had a, a pretty extensive arrest record, mostly drug related, drug and alcohol related um, incidents. I didn't have any, you know, any violent crimes or crimes against other people. It was all pretty much self-inflicted and stuff that involved drugs and drinking and, you know, misbehaviors as a result of that. So, yeah, I was in a I was in a work furlough project here in San Diego and part of, you know, being in work furlough, I had to stay clean and of course I didn't. Um, I had tested positive for uh, meth while I was in there. They told me that they were going to transport me back to county jail because I violated the conditions of my probation. And I, I took off. I literally took off running from the work furlough program. And as a result, a warrant was put out for my arrest for uh, violating those conditions. And I've spent probably a couple of months or maybe two or three months anyway on the run here in San Diego, just kind of hiding out. I was actually in a drug program for a little while and got booted out of that program because, you know, couldn't stay clean and wound up leaving there and flew out to Texas. I was in uh, Austin, Texas to visit my son, who was two years old at the time, and his mother. Eventually, law enforcement would catch up with Uriah for violating probation when he ran from his work furlough program. And even though he was on the run and hiding out, he left quite a trail for them to track. I'm not exactly sure how they caught up with me in Texas. Probably wasn't that difficult, I would say. I mean, I drove my truck to the San Diego airport and just left my truck sitting in the parking lot. So I'm sure they put two and two together if my truck's at the airport, you know. Probably flew somewhere. Probably flew somewhere. So I'm sure their investigation led to me being in, uh, in Texas. Somehow they, you know, found out where I was at. And um, I was actually asleep with my son's mother. And it was in the early morning hours. It was still dark. And I believe it was the, the Texas Marshals and the Texas Rangers raided the house that I was in. And I woke up to a, a gun and a flashlight in my face. I spent a couple of weeks um, in jail in Travis County in Austin, Texas there. And then they extradited me back to San Diego. You know, I was... I was worried, but I wasn't scared. I mean, I figured, okay, well, I'm probably going to wind up doing maybe a year or so, you know, for violating my probation, you know, and then I would get out and move on from there. But uh, that certainly didn't happen. Uriah's life was about to dramatically change for the worse. Although he expected to be punished for violating probation for his drug offenses, he had no idea what was in store for him from the long arm of the law. At his arraignment, Uriah would hear from the court about another crime, a very serious crime, and law enforcement was certain that he was the perpetrator. I got called into court, and I thought it was just an arraignment for, you know, violating my probation. And I'm standing there next to a very tall court-appointed attorney. He was an old guy, kind of crusty looking and nice, but and I'm not trying to be rude about it. But um, anyway, they start reading off these charges, you know, kidnapping, rape, and robbery. And I mean, my legs just about buckled underneath of me. It was all I could do to stay standing. And I 
you know, I mumbled some stuff. I, I might have even swore. And the court-appointed attorney kind of shushed me because I was asking him, you know, like, what the hell is going on? And he told me that he would explain things after the hearing. And so, you know, I shuffled back to my cell, just scared as hell. I mean, I was so confused and scared. I, I had no idea what was going on. Uh, of course, I didn't know anything about, you know, the crimes which I was being accused of. Just really in a state of panic, you know. And I mean, I'm still, you know, coming down from having done drugs for years and, you know, dealing with all that kind of crazy emotion and, you know, psychological stuff. And then something like this comes up. It was, it was absolutely devastating. I mean, I just, I cried, <laughs> I went into depression, you know, screamed and yelled at the wall in the cell. And yeah, just, it was just crazy. It would take a while before all the information got to Uriah, but eventually the full picture came into focus. Uriah was in real trouble, and due to his many years of substance abuse, he was in no position to defend himself. What you're about to hear took many years to piece together, a lot of it coming from the trial itself. And it's not suitable for a younger audience. Listener discretion is advised. The crime happened in Lemon Grove here in San Diego. Um, it was a 16-year-old girl that was walking down the street from her house. If I remember correctly, she was going to a mutual friend's house to, to paint or something like that. She was wearing a skirt and, as she called it in her own words, a wife beater, which is, you know, just a tank top. She had some headphones on. It was a CD that she was listening to. A guy drove past her in a white pickup truck, a small white pickup truck with a, in her words, a beat up camper shell. And, you know, sometime shortly thereafter, maybe like 10 or 15 minutes after, she noticed this guy driving by in that truck, staring at her while she walked down the street. She was attacked from behind. She was able to break free the first time. The man continued to chase her, grabbed her, thrust her down on the side of the road. He physically picked her up off of the sidewalk and threw her, you know, into the brush or whatever next to the sidewalk and digitally penetrated her with his finger. She was able to get up and break free again. And there was a lady, a passerby driving, and she was able to get her to stop. And I believe she got into that lady's vehicle and, and, and drove off from there. Uriah's case is a great example of how a series of coincidences can pile up against you. And once you get on law enforcement's radar for past infractions, it can be very difficult to get the benefit of the doubt. Uriah's stepfather just happened to own a truck that looked like the perpetrator's truck. Although Uriah's stepfather lived nowhere near Lemon Grove, a coworker who did just happened to be borrowing that truck while the investigation was going on. And as we were about to hear, Uriah just happened to bear a resemblance to the actual perpetrator. As it turns out, my um, stepfather, who was a general contractor at the time, I was an employee of his. He actually had a white Nissan pickup with a camper shell on it. And to add to that, I had a coworker also that, you know, working for my stepdad, the both of us, we worked on the job sites together. He lived in Lemon Grove, just a, a short distance away from where the crime actually happened. 
And so after the crime was committed, the police got a description of the vehicle and then also a, a description from the victim of what the guy supposedly looked like in the in the truck. And um, they put an APB out on that vehicle. And I think it was roughly a month after the crime was actually committed that somebody spotted a white pickup truck in my coworker's driveway. And so they called it in. A uh, detective went over there, took photos of the truck, also questioned my coworker, and showed the victim a, I think it was a driver's license photo of my coworker, and she said no, that he was too old. Uh, I don't really know all the details of how it came to me, but needless to say, it got back to, you know, my stepfather being the owner of the truck, and they also showed the victim a photo of my stepdad, and again, she said no, too old. So they discovered that I was using my parents' physical address, which was in Ocean Beach, as a, a mailing address, which I was. Uh, I didn't live there, but I used their address as a mailing address because I had just recently moved back to San Diego from Nevada. So I used their address to get a driver's license for California. And so they also used my photo from my driver's license and showed it to the victim. And I guess they put that in like a six-pack photo lineup. The victim did pick out my photo, but she was not 100% sure. She said something like, you know, looks like him, 70% sure, something to that effect, but didn't positively ID me in that six-pack photo lineup until sometime later, much later. Wow. Were there any other witnesses at the scene or anybody else that they talked to? Uh, yeah, there was another passerby. He was actually on his way to the Home Depot, which was right around the corner from where the crime was committed. He was driving by and saw something going on with the victim and a man and thought that maybe it was just a, a boyfriend and a girlfriend, you know, having a spat or something out on the street. So he didn't stop. Um, he continued on to Home Depot, did whatever he had to do there. And then on his way back, he saw that there were police at the scene. So that's when he stopped and then, I guess, gave a, a description of what he had witnessed when he drove by the first time. Did he make an ID of you ever? He did in court. As you can hear, the coincidences kept piling up. There's a truck, there's a location, and there's a shared resemblance. But the one thing the case did not have was DNA evidence. Nothing in the forensics pointed to Uriah. Unfortunately, and also by way of coincidence, this was a digital rape through the use of fingers rather than genitals. And so the lack of DNA from semen or other body fluids could be explained away. They did some DNA testing. They did fingernail scrapings from the victim. Um, they also did DNA testing on her underwear, but because it wasn't your standard rape, of course, they didn't come up with any semen or anything like that. And then when the victim went home, she showered and threw her clothes into the laundry basket. So they didn't come up with anything under her fingernails from the scrapings from that, except for her own DNA. 
So wow. So that was all the DNA testing that was done at the time. It would take a while before Uriah would know his fate. He would remain in county jail, waiting and worrying, away from family and friends, for nearly two years before his trial would begin. And then all of a sudden, the proceedings start, and in a week and a half, it would all be over. His life would be forever changed. So it was probably a good 18 months, maybe even two years, before I actually wound up going to trial from the day of my arrest. Did they offer you any plea deals along the way? They did. It was something like 15 or 20 years you know, and of course, I'm not going to plead guilty to something that I didn't do. So there was no way that I would accept a plea deal right. by, by any means. You know, when I was in county jail and I, I knew that I was on my way to trial, I really, really believed that um, before the day would actually come that I would be sitting in a trial that a detective or one of my attorneys or somebody would actually come in to see me and just say, you know, sorry. Wrong <laughs> we, guy. Yeah, wrong guy. You know, get the hell out of here. I, I really, truly believe that. I I was really ignorant on how slowly the wheels of justice turn and how easy it is to be accused and convicted of something that you didn't do. I had no idea. I was just so ignorant. Myself, my family, we were, we were just all completely blindsided by this and just really expected that, you know, being innocent, that it would never come to trial. It was absolutely devastating the the, the whole time um, leading up to my trial. And then the first day came and here I am going through jury selection. It was just, it was, it's like being in a black hole, you know? It's so hard to really put words to it uh, because it's just so dark and emotional for me. I think my trial lasted maybe about a week and a half. And it, it, of course, it was just an absolute roller coaster of emotions. Some days I really felt extremely hopeful. You know, I, I felt that, okay, I wasn't happy with either one of my attorney's performance. It's really bad, in, in my opinion. But there were days that I left the courtroom feeling, you know, pretty hopeful. Like, you know, good job. The truth was told today. Mm -hmm. um, so the jury had the chance to hear at least some of the truth. Other days I left there feeling like, I don't know just really uncertain. Eventually, both the prosecution and defense would rest their cases, and the judge would put Uriah's fate in the hands of the jury. They would go back to their private room and deliberate on the charges and evidence presented. They were not gone long. Yeah, so closing arguments, I was taking, there's little holding cells behind the courtrooms, and um, that's where I was made to sit while the jury deliberated. And... They came back just hours later. Quick. So, yeah, it was really fast. But, you know, it didn't seem like it, even though it was only a few hours sitting back there in that, that holding cell. I was just... Um, I was just on my hands and knees praying. I 
I was just praying, you know, that God would cause the jurors to see the truth and that he would open their eyes. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, it didn't happen then. The jury would ultimately convict Uriah on all counts of kidnapping and rape. In that devastating moment, he learned that he was not going home. He would not be reunited with family and friends. The conviction was serious, and the sentence would be harsh. Uriah was going to receive a life sentence for a crime he did not commit. Although it looked hopeless and Uriah had burned many bridges with loved ones, there was one person in particular who believed in his innocence. His stepfather, Rick Gambino, knew Uriah was innocent because he was at work when the rape and kidnapping happened. And despite testifying about this to the jury, they simply didn't buy it. But Rick was not giving up on his stepson. Not only did he contact our offices at the California Innocence Project, he did his own investigation, gathering much-needed information. So, yeah, he, uh, he was communicating with the law student about my case, and it took a little bit of time. I think from first contact with the California Innocence Project, it it was about a year, maybe a little less, before things really started moving. But my stepfather, he was on my side. Prior to this happening, I burned a lot of bridges with him. You know, as I said, I was his employee. And with all my drug problems, it, it caused a lot of issues between us. So he was pretty pissed off, you know before I went to jail, and then even a little bit shortly thereafter, until he realized, you know, what I was being accused of. And he started digging into it himself, just being his own investigator, and realized that I was actually at work the day and time this crime was committed. I was on his job site. He knew I was there. My coworker, Randy, knew that I was at work. I was working right at his side the very day and time the crime was committed. So he had my case files really organized, phone records, just all sorts of stuff. And he was able to turn all that information over to the law student. These cases are very difficult, and it would take us many years before we would eventually get Uriah out of prison. The duality of hope and fear can cause a great deal of anguish. Because he was convicted of raping a minor, Uriah's safety was a daily concern. As difficult as it would be, he would need to keep his conviction a secret just to survive. I was just tired, tired of, um, tired of living in fear, being a, a convicted rapist in prison. You have a target on your back. So, pretty much the whole time, you know, I just lived in in fear, just waiting. It wasn't a matter of if, but when somebody was going to find out what I was in there for and assault me, you know, try to extort me in some way or, you know, do some sort of harm to me. Did anybody ever find out why you were in? A couple of people did. And I don't know why. I am a man of faith, so I, you know, I believe that God put a protective hedge up around me while I was in there. At one time... I was returning back to the uh, to my cell, 
from a visit with my parents and two other inmates were accompanying me and they were pretty well known on the prison yard, got in a lot of trouble and were into illegal activities, uh, even in prison and a prison guard, he wouldn't let us into the building. He, he just made us stand outside for a while and he opened the, the window to the tower and I had kind of mouthed off to him a little bit, you know, I was irritated and he called me a fucking chomo in front of these two inmates and they both just sort of looked at me and then they looked at each other and then they just kind of shook their head. You know, they're like, well, he's a fucking prick anyway. And nothing ever came of it. Wow. I don't know why. The whole time I was in prison, nobody ever asked to see my paperwork, which is pretty common. Typically, the first thing they do is when you walk into a a prison yard, your cellmate, at the very least, is supposed to check your paperwork. And that never happened. Wow. Not once. For those not familiar with prison slang, CHOMO is short for child molester. And if there is one thing that prisoners hate more than a rapist, it's a child molester. When the prison guard called Uriah a chomo, he was putting his life in danger. Luckily for Uriah, his fellow inmates decided not to follow up on that event. And also lucky for Uriah, we were beginning to make traction with his case. We finally got court approval to run DNA testing on the victim's clothing to see if anything was missed back in 2004. But this process would take a while, and Uriah was beginning to lose hope. Based off of the victim's own testimony, they thought, it would be a good idea to have the victim's clothing tested where the victim testified the attacker had the most contact with. One of those articles of clothing was her skirt. In front of the skirt, he grabbed her skirt to pull it up to to get to her private parts. So that was an obvious place, you know, where they thought some DNA would be deposited as well as the left side of her tank top, um, because she said that when he attacked her from behind, that his chin and his face were up against the left side of her cheek and everything. So that was another possible area where he deposited DNA. There was a slow process. There was a lot of uh, court filings going back and forth with the district attorney's office trying to come up with a a lab that both parties could agree to, to have the victim's clothing sent to for testing. And ultimately, um, a lab in Virginia, I believe it was called Bodhi Technology, was chosen. And it was sent there. I don't recall what year that was. But again, it was another really, really slow process. I, I know months went by from the time they received the victim's clothing until testing was done and then the the results came out um, from that test. But there were a lot of highs and lows, even during that time, just really severe bouts of depression. And even feeling so hopeful with what was going on, there were just moments that I just just didn't didn't want to go on. I was just tired. So I was Dealing with all of that, you know, while trying to remain hopeful about my case, that things would turn out in my favor.
finally, the day we had all been waiting for arrived. We received the results from the DNA tests. It was time to visit Uriah and let him know whether he was going home or not. Our founder and my boss, Justin Brooks, would be joining that day. He would break the news to Uriah. I was in my cell at the time. I was notified that I had a legal visit, they call him. And I wasn't expecting one, so I had no idea what was going on. So I walk over there, and they lead me into down a, a hallway, and they open up a door, and there were a handful of people in there. I noticed Justin Brooks, <laughs> of course, uh, right off the bat because I had, you know, I'd seen him on TV, and Alyssa was there, Sarah Bear, and the the last law student that I had, and um, Justin greets me with a big grin and shakes my hand and he just kind of went right into it. He's like, Uriah, there's only two reasons that I would be here. One, it's either really good news or two, it's really bad news. And he broke out with that big grin of his (laughs) and said, it's really good news. And we all cried. And uh, after we all kind of gained our composure, um, Justin started explaining to me what was going on with the DNA. Not only that they did extract male DNA from the victim's clothing, but that they were able to roll it out from being mine, of course. And when they ran it through CODIS, they came up with the match. The actual perpetrator of the crime he was in there because he had committed another sex offense. I don't know the details exactly of that offense, but it was I know for sure it was another sex crime. And that's the reason that he was in CODIS. He lived in Lemon Grove, and it's my understanding he was only a couple of miles from where the crime actually occurred. Wow. He doesn't live in this state anymore. And I was told that... Um, that they were not going to go after him for this crime. I guess the statute of limitations ran out on the uh, the rape charge, so, which it's just one of those things that to this day really bothers me because nobody's really been held, held accountable for what happened here, not to me, not to the victim. Both Uriah and the victim suffered tremendously because of someone else's crime. And adding salt to those wounds, the actual offender will escape justice. As unfair as that sounds, in the greater calculus, Uriah was incredibly lucky. But for the evidence being kept in the condition that it was, and but for the actual offender's DNA being in CODIS, the combined DNA index system, it is likely he would have spent the rest of his life in prison. The thought in itself is absolutely devastating because I think that if the evidence hadn't been preserved or maybe if the perpetrator's DNA wasn't in the database, what would have happened then? But it's likely there would have really been no hope for me. So 
I mean, it's possible I could have died in prison. And that's a scary thought, sure. especially considering, you know, how blessed I am today. You know, I have an amazing wife, got two stepkids, got grandbabies at home. You know, I have a fantastic job. I mean, in spite of how I feel, you know, emotionally some days being angry, life is actually really good. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Produced and written by Lawrence Coletti. Audio engineering by Adam Lockwood. Thank you to Clio for their support of the California Innocence Project and the CIP podcast. Special contribution of music and sound elements by real-life exoneree William Michael Dillon. You can find his catalog of work at frameddillon.com. That's framed, D-I-L-L-O-N.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Samanchik, and you've been listening to the California Innocence Project podcast here on Legal Talk Network. Every month, the California Innocence Project receives thousands of handwritten letters from those seeking justice for wrongful convictions. The impact of these injustices can be life-altering, and without the right technology in place, CIP cannot help all those in need. That's why the team relies on Clio's case management software. By logging these letters into Clio, the CIP team can work on hundreds of matters at any given time and investigate these cases all the way through to exoneration. Clio works tirelessly with organizations like CIP to transform the legal experience for all. Visit Clio.com to learn how they support law firms big and small in creating equitable and just outcomes. That's C-L-I-O dot com.